Let's open the Scriptures together then to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. We'll also read a few verses from James, chapter 3. Both passages will help shed some light on what the Spirit is writing about and teaching us in James, chapter 1. James writes there about praying for wisdom. So let's read Matthew 6, the verses 19 through 24, in your pew Bible, page 1031. The Lord Jesus is speaking here in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We turn now to James itself, the chapter 3, page 1290 in the Pew Bible, 1290. And James, though he begins writing about wisdom in chapter 1, he comes back to it in chapter 3. That helps us to understand what he means by wisdom. Chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So far the reading of God's Word. I invite you to turn with me to James chapter 1, where we'll be focusing on the verses 5 through 8. Continuing our series, maybe we'll start at verse 2 just to refresh us with the context. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, 
that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here begins our text. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That's where we'll stop for today. In response we'll, to the sermon, we'll sing Psalm 111, where the Lord has us, reminds us that wisdom, uh, the beginning of wisdom, is the fear of the Lord. Psalm 111 stands as 3, 4, and 5. <clears throat> Holy and loved Church of God in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we move along in this letter of James, we encounter two things at least, which makes it a real challenge to understand James's message. The first thing is that James seems to jump from topic to topic almost randomly. Chapter 1 itself is a prime example of this. If you were to just glance over the chapter and look at the paragraphs that are set out in the English version, you can see that there are nine paragraphs. And they read, when you read through them, they read like nine disconnected subjects. For example, we've already dealt in depth with verses 2, 3, and 4. That's all about trials. Now James, in the third paragraph, speaks to us about wisdom. What does wisdom have to do with trials? No sooner do we ask that question than we find James switching gears in the next paragraph to talk about the rich and the poor. Next paragraph, temptation. Then comes God the Father, some words about God the Father. Then he speaks about getting rid of anger. Next paragraph after that, being doers of the word. And finally, end of the chapter, he speaks about visiting orphans and widows. We've got 17 verses in chapter 1, nine topics, mini topics it would appear, one after the other. It's like a whirlwind when you read through it. It can leave you somewhat disoriented, even breathless, we want to say, Brother James, slow it down, please. Take your time. Let us catch up to you. So that's one thing about James's style that makes it challenging. The other thing is that James has a habit of saying hard things, things which hit us between the eyes and, and unseat us, make us uncomfortable and make us question ourselves or certain things. For example, in our text, James commands us to ask God for wisdom, but then he adds this qualifier in verse 6, let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. 
that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Ask with no doubting. Ouch. How am I going to do that? My faith is not always that confident. Sometimes I struggle with questions. Sometimes I'm not so sure I trust in the Lord as much as I should. Does that mean that God doesn't answer my prayers? Does that mean that I'm a double-minded man, as he says in verse 8? This is a, a hard saying of James. Can Christians never have questions or uncertainties or, or lingering doubts about certain things? So James, the book of James, on the one hand, you know, you can read through it and it's, it's kind of easy to understand. On the other hand, when you start thinking about it, it's not that easy to fathom. So what we're going to do together is slow it down and unpack what he is saying and try to get to the bottom of it. And today we hope to see that wisdom, the wisdom we are commanded to ask of God, has everything to do with those trials. And the doubt that we are not to have has everything to do with commitment to God, the God whom we are asking. So I bring to you this word of the Lord under this theme, to gain the blessings of trials, ask God for wisdom. To gain the blessings of trials, ask God for wisdom. We'll see two things we are to know the God that we're asking, and we are to trust the God that we're asking. Well, James, in chapter uh, 1, verse 5, gives us a clue, an indicator, that he is very much still thinking about the trials of verses 2, 3, and 4. He does that by repeating a certain word. It's the word lax. In verse 4, James writes, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Then he starts verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, same verb. So he's, he's drawing a connection. There's something lacking, we need to ask God for what is lacking. And there's a bit more to the opening of verse 5, when James says, if any of you lacks wisdom we might think he's just talking about a remote possibility. But James is not referring to that potentially random reader who might be a little short on wisdom, and then he gives this little bit of advice. Look, if you're a bit short on wisdom, ask God, okay? That's not what he's saying. After all, just think about it, would any Christian, any believer, ever sincerely say to God, uh, I've got enough wisdom, I don't need to ask for any more. Thanks, Lord. That very concept is ridiculous, isn't it? The book of Proverbs tells us again and again that those who are wise are always seeking to grow in their wisdom. So, no human, no, no believer ever has enough wisdom. And, and this is a, a, a translation issue. In English, it sounds like James presents only a possibility. But in the Greek, 
the way that he constructs the grammar, that was a way to speak about the reality of a given situation. You could legitimately translate verse 5 this way, since or because you and every believer lack wisdom, go ahead and ask God. You lack wisdom, ask God. There's no doubt about that, about the lack of wisdom. So, then comes the question, well, what exactly is wisdom? And how does it connect with going through trials, through hardships? When we think of wisdom, we might think of knowledge, of having a head full of information that we can recall and sift through. We might think of that really smart person in our class who always seems to have the answers. And it is true that wisdom in the Bible involves a knowledge, a certain kind of knowledge, but at the same time, it's a lot more than knowledge. It's a lot more than knowing. It's knowing what the Lord expects of us. So the knowledge of His, His Word and, and all that God asks of us in it, it's that knowledge. But it's, it's knowing that and how to apply it in all the particular situations that we come across in life. So it's knowing the Word and putting it into practice. James mentions this combination of knowing and acting in chapter 3, which we read, verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. By his good conduct, you display, or the person displays wisdom. So wisdom is both understanding and acting. Knowing what God wants of us in the moment and then going ahead and doing that. Well, how easy is that? To do what God wants us to do in the moment of trial or trouble or crisis. If it's hard to know what God wants us to do, isn't it even harder to put it into practice? Our weakness, our sinful inclinations, they get in the way of us applying what we know, don't they? Well, that's why James exhorts us to ask for wisdom from God. This wisdom is a gift from above. We can't generate it out of our own heart. We are only able to know the way of the Lord and to act on that knowledge as the Lord gives us that knowledge and ability, as we lean on the Lord for understanding, and as we lean on the Lord for the ability to put it into practice. So when you understand what wisdom is, the connection to trials starts to become clear. James has commanded us in verse 2, count it all joy when we meet various trials. Well, that's something very counterintuitive, isn't it? We saw that the last time. But as we learned, the joy is not in the actual suffering itself. The joy is in what results from the trial and the hardship, 
The, the joy is found in the blessings that come out of the trials. So, as trouble sets in in our life at certain points, and even as tears flow with the trouble, we are meant to look through the tears and eagerly expect at least two blessings to come out of all of this. First, that we gain a steady trust in the Lord over the long haul. That's blessing number one. That the, 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 the dross and unwanted things in my life that are currently restricting my faith, restricting my trust in God, that all that stuff starts to fall away. And secondly, that the blessing of a deeper, undivided loyalty to the Lord grows in us. We become, as James says, perfect. And you remember that means laser-focused, undivided, laser-focused on living for the Lord and the Lord alone. Well, none of that comes naturally in the trials of life. To gain that heavenly perspective on what's really going on in the hardships, as well as to endure in the heat of the flame of God's refining fire, and to endure in, in faith and joy, that takes a wisdom, brothers and sisters, that is out of this world. A wisdom that comes down from above and only from above. The blessings and the joy that can be ours as we battle through sorrow and pain and tragedy, that can only come from the Lord, our covenant God. Ask Him for that wisdom. And it turns out, says James, that when we ask God for this wisdom, God is only too happy to give it. That's what James gets across in the rest of verse 5. He's basically saying, since you and me and all Christians need wisdom to find joy in our trials, ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. That's the promise. It will be given. James himself, you remember, went through trials. He was in Jerusalem, part of the persecuted church, the church in the dispersion, as he starts off the letter with. He would have seen fellow believers arrested and put into jail. He had certainly seen Peter almost killed. He had seen the apostle James been killed by Herod. His own life would have been under constant threat there in Jerusalem. So he would have been praying this prayer, Lord, give me wisdom. And you and I need to pray this prayer in our sufferings. We need to pray in whatever trials the Lord might put on our path. And re remember from verse Two and three, this is about a variety of trials. James says, whenever trials of various kinds. So not just being directly persecuted by the authorities of the land, but it includes every kind of trial, from personal to public, from emotional to physical, 
from injury to loss and everything in between. So, brothers and sisters, in your hurts and in your heartaches, have you asked God for wisdom? Don't get me wrong. It's certainly okay to ask God for relief, for comfort, for encouragement. Ask for that too, but don't stop there. Ask your God for what James is telling us to ask for, wisdom. Wisdom to endure, wisdom to plow through the trial in the strength of the Lord. Why? So that the joy of the promised blessings will bubble up in you. And when you pray that prayer for wisdom, our text says, the Holy Spirit says, that your prayer for wisdom will always, without exception, be granted to you. This is the powerful promise here in verse 5. When it comes to some of God's other gifts, we may certainly ask them of the Lord, in, but the Lord might withhold them from us in His own wisdom. For example, take the gift of healing or health. We can certainly ask the Lord for that. It's a promise in His covenant to give health and healing, but it's not an absolute promise in that sense. For his own purposes, our Father may not grant healing, may not give health. We're allowed to ask for other gifts, like the gift of a husband or a wife or children. But again, it might be that for our ultimate good and for his glory, the Father above has other plans for us. But it's different when it comes to wisdom. When it comes to asking for wisdom, the Father will never say no. He is eager to give this gift and to give it, says James, abundantly. The gift of right understanding leading to right action in the moment. James wants us to be fully confident in this, so he goes on quickly to describe the character of God, the God that we're asking. If we're going to ask this, this important, vital thing of God, we need to be assured, we need to know the kind of God we're asking it of. And James says, the God that you're asking is a generous God. In the Greek, the description is stronger and more basic. It's, it's used as an adjective. James writes literally that, that God is the giving God. Ask the giving God. In other words, it belongs to God's nature to give and to want to give and to give abundantly. He's the giving God. It reminds you what the Lord Jesus taught in Luke 11 about prayer. Jesus said this, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, would give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, would give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? 
The Holy Spirit and wisdom are very closely associated in the Bible. The Holy Spirit is the agent of the Father to impart wisdom. And the Father is eager to lavish on His children this gift of both the Spirit and wisdom. For what He wants, what the Father wants, is children who love Him, children who think and act wisely, and children who will then walk with their Father hand in hand. Of course, He's going to give us wisdom. The nuance of that word giving in the Greek includes generosity, but it also includes the idea of single-mindedness, of doing so, of giving without any hesitation. And James adds the further description, without reproach. What does that mean, reproach? Well, that means finding fault. God doesn't find fault with us for asking this wisdom. You know, we can do that sometimes with each other, right? Like when you see someone coming to you, maybe it's a classmate or a friend, or maybe it's your son or daughter, and you've observed them in need, kind of struggling through something, maybe at home or at school or at work, and you, you can see that they need your help, but they're not asking you for it, not yet. And when they finally realize it and they finally come to you, it's easy for us to be kind of smug and say something to them kind of snarky like, took you long enough. About time you asked, finally came to your senses, eh? There's something in us that wants to put the other person down, wants to make our neighbor feel small for being in need of our help. But, brothers and sisters, there's nothing of that in the Lord. Nothing. Of course, He knows all our weaknesses and needs, and He's long known how much you and I require His help. The Lord doesn't need information. He knows all of that. But it's His nature to give generously. It's His nature to give freely. It's His nature to give without a lecture, putting us down the moment we ask making us feel stupid. Isn't this what our God has showed us again and again in the history of His dealings with His people? When His people ask Him for what is truly needed in their moment, then He, he gives them what's needed, doesn't He? His people cried out for relief in Egyptian slavery, and God not only brought them out of Egypt, but what did He do? He, he brought them into a land that they could call their own. They could call their home. And what kind of a land was it? Was it a barren terrain that just didn't have Egyptians in it? No. The Bible describes it as a land flowing with milk and honey. He's a giving God, a generous God. Along the way, they needed food and water in the desert, and God provided manna on the ground every single day, six days of the week enough for the Sabbath twice on, the, on, on Friday ahead of the Sabbath, and water gushed forth from the rock. When that was needed, he gives devotedly. He doesn't let his people down. Hezekiah, another example, prayed for God to defend God's name and his people from the 
massive and powerful Assyrian army that was threatening to sack Jerusalem and was spewing insults against the Lord God. And in one single night, the Assyrians retreated. The Lord gives without hesitation, brothers and sisters. And just think of the greatest enslavement that God's people endured. You and me included. We've all, by nature, are enslaved by sin. We have been abused by Satan and his demons. And of ourselves, by nature, every human being is on our way. We're on our way to eternal damnation in death. So God sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, sent Him to die a sinner's death in our place as payment. And in that moment of His death, instantly sin and Satan and death lost all power over us. This is your God, brothers and sisters, your loving God, your sacrificing God, your giving God, who will not fail to send you what He has promised, wisdom, the wisdom that you ask. And through that wisdom, He will bring you, through the power of His Spirit, he will bring you through that trial. You will receive the perspective you need and you will receive the strength you need to endure the difficulty, putting one foot in front of the other, growing closer to your God and experiencing along the way the joy of walking hand in hand with your Father and growing stronger and stronger in trust. For the trust, or faith, just a synonym, same thing. The trust or faith that we have, it's, it's, it's not always as strong as it ought to be, is it? Our confidence in what we're asking of God isn't always as rock solid as it could be, is it? Especially when trials come and, and hardships hit. And our world begins to unravel in a very short period of time, we can then especially have our questions and our uncertainties. All believers will have that at one point and often at multiple points in our lives. It's, it's this reality, these experiences, which we can all relate to, I'm sure, that cause our hearts to fall when we read James's words in verse 6. A knot develops in our stomachs, doesn't it? When we hear James say, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. How are we supposed to take that? Are we being commanded here to convince ourselves that God will give us what we want is the implication that we'll only receive what we ask of God if we first remove any traces of uncertainty from our hearts and minds. Is James telling us that it's wrong to have any questions about God or about what God is doing in our lives? Is it forbidden to cry out in our misery, why, O oh Lord, and how long, O oh God? 
What does James mean by doubting? And why is it condemned so sharply? Well, it might help to start with what James is not saying. James is not saying that our faith has to be 100% spotless, without any cracks, without any holes that need repair. For that to be the case, you and I would need to be without sin. And James has already said in verse 4 that each believer is on a, a journey, he's en route to becoming perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So there is a lack in us, James has already said. We are striving for that goal of, of complete, complete maturity, but we're not there yet. And we won't be there until this life is behind us. And later in chapter 3, verse 2, James openly admits, we all stumble in many ways. So James himself admits that he is imperfect. He's an incomplete sinner, like the people he's writing to, like the Ancasterites ourselves. And the Bible, on top of that, has many examples of true believers who struggled with the confidence of faith. Think of Gideon. Gideon, who was called by God to lead Israel's army to fight the, the Midianites, and that was a tremendous call. The Midianites were countless hordes, and they had dominated Israel for years. Gideon, to take up that call, he had to fight his own fears. He had to fight his lack of courage. He had big-time questions and doubts about whether he was the right man for the job, about whether the Lord had picked the right guy. He twice asked God for a sign, and God twice gave him a sign, confirming him, yes, Gideon, you are the right man for the job, and that strengthened his faith. So God didn't take it ill of Gideon that he had questions. Think of Elijah, the powerful prophet of the Lord, who stood up to Ahab, who, who stood up to Jezebel, though the fierce king and queen who did so much evil in Israel. But then Elijah, in a moment of weakness and fear, became despondent, and he ran away after Jezebel threatened him. In fact, he ran away and he wanted to die. Lord, take my life, he prayed. Elijah had his questions. Many of the Psalms do the same. They register the struggles and the questions of true believers. Psalm 44 is one example. There the sons of Korah cry out, Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself! Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Brothers and sisters, the, the truth is even the strongest of believers can have their faith rocked to the core. Is that the kind of person James is writing about here? Are they really to be described as double-minded and unstable in all their ways? Well, thankfully, the answer is no. James hints at what he's driving at in the word that is translated here, doubting. The word in its 
main verb form means to distinguish, to divide, to dispute. And as James uses it here, it means disputing within one's own mind. So you've got a kind of an argument in your own mind, and that's where the translation doubt comes from. Well, in this context, that gives the flavor of someone who has not yet made up his mind. James is writing about a person who's as yet undecided, uncommitted. And that, brothers and sisters, is the opposite of faith. When you and I hear the word doubt, we often think that the opposite of that word is confidence. Confidence is the opposite of doubt. But James is thinking here about the contrast between faith and unbelief, between commitment and uncommitted. This comes out more clearly in verse 8, where he describes this individual as a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Double-minded. Literally in the Greek, two-souled. We might say two-faced. James is picking up on what the Lord Jesus taught in Matthew 6. We read that. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. James is writing about that kind of person. He hasn't committed himself yet to the Lord. He might very well be, be in the assembly of God's people, doing the religious thing for a while, throwing up a prayer now and again, but all of that for this individual is like throwing the dice. It's a game of chance. He's not sure. He's not committed. He hasn't put his trust in the one he's praying to. He figures, well, prayer can't hurt, can it? Maybe it'll gain me something. It's the kind of person we sang about in Psalm 12 which describes that individual there as double-hearted. That's very similar to the two-souled person that James writes about. That Psalm 12 describes such a person or people as men who lie to one another. With flattering lips and double heart they speak. These are people who have not given themselves, they have not surrendered their whole heart, soul, and mind to the Lord their God, but they only make a show of it, but meanwhile, they're keeping their cards close to their vest and they serve themselves. That's the double-minded man. That is the doubter that James writes of. And such a person will get nothing from God no matter how many times he throws up a prayer. There's a warning in that, isn't there, brothers and sisters? And we need to take heed to it as well. James will have many such warnings in his letter to his readers, readers, church-gathering people like us. Warnings for unbelievers in the midst of the gathering of the church. So each of us should examine ourselves carefully, and if this describes us, we need to repent. So ask yourself, am I committed to God or not yet committed? Am I a floater, one foot in the world, one foot in the church, on Sundays in church, but the other days happily joining in with unbelievers, doing what unbelievers do? 
Do I have a double mind? One day kind of attracted to God and His ways, but another day attracted to the world's ways. One day acting like a Christian, another day acting like a non-Christian, like a wave tossed to and fro in the sea. Where is your heart at, brothers and sisters? Is it true blue, dedicated to serving the Lord, or is it wanting the best of both worlds? Remember this warning, the double-minded man gets zip from God. So give your whole heart, total commitment to the Lord, your Savior. And on the other hand, brothers and sisters, you do not have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid if you have your questions, your honest questions, or your honest struggle with a lack of confidence. That's the very thing we're taught here to ask wisdom to overcome. That's the very thing God promises to give you and me generously without finding fault. So by all means, ask God for wisdom, even if you've got some questions and, and lingering doubts and struggles of heart. He's eager to give you that wisdom. He's eager to solidify your faith. He's eager to, eager to see your heart grow undivided in its commitment to Him. God did not send Jesus to die for your sins and mine, to secure our place in His family, only then to lay a demand for you first to have to banish every last ounce of uncertainty from your heart before you can enter into His family. No! The Lord Jesus brings you into His family, and the Lord Jesus promises to banish whatever remaining uncertainty might be left. He'll do that through the spirit of wisdom as He leads you, His child, through the hardships. So go ahead and ask. And ask again. Pray, Father, I do believe. I do love You, but I struggle with certain things. I struggle with my faith. Help me with my waffling. Give me wisdom to grow steadfast in faith and to become completely undivided in my loyalty to you. Help me, Father. That is the prayer of faith spoken of here. A prayer which the Spirit says, it will be given. Your giving God has promised to do so. And the blood of His Son is proof that He keeps His promises. It's proof that He already loves you with an undying love. So go ahead and ask. And know that your God will make your prayer come true. Amen.